From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is The ER. This week, Turkey. For years, Turkey boasted open markets, a democratically elected government, relative freedom of the press. But two years ago, a faction of the military staged a coup attempt against President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. A statement by coup organizers declared martial law as tanks took up positions at the entrance to Istanbul's airport, driving alongside cars on highways, jets and helicopters buzzing overhead. He blamed it in part on followers of exiled cleric and former ally, Fethullah Gulen. Gulen is currently living in the U.S. in self-imposed exile. He is the leader of the Hizmet movement, uniting Turks who support Gulen's ideas on Islam and democracy. Turkey has in the past demanded his extradition from the United States and branded his group a terrorist movement. The coup failed, and what followed was a purge of thousands from positions of power in both the government and military. And in the two years since, Erdogan has cracked down on nearly all dissent. From human rights activists, academics, teachers, students, journalists. In 2017, a referendum changed the Turkish constitution, solidifying Erdogan's grip on power. And this August, the Turkish lira began to collapse. The turmoil is testing his authoritarian style. Erdogan already has a lot of control over the media, the court system, and Turkey's foreign policy. But there's questions over whether he can lift the country out of an escalating economic crisis. Henri Barki, a Turkey scholar who worked in the State Department during the Clinton presidency, was in Turkey on the night of the coup. He left the country safely, but Turkish authorities later accused him of being one of the plotters of the coup. He now says the ordeal that followed, it took a toll on his personal life and his career. We began our conversation by talking about the conference he was hosting that week on an island far from the action in Ankara and Istanbul. I was uh, conducting a, a workshop on Iran and the then JCPOA, the nuclear deal that President Obama had signed. And the purpose was to look at how the Middle East was reacting to the JCPOA, and I decided at the time I was I was at the Wilson Center. We had a grant to look at that, and I decided instead of bringing everybody from the Middle East to Washington, might as well do it on uh, in Istanbul on an island that I know very very well, at an hotel I knew very well, and um, so I decided to hold it there. What's the island called? Büyükada, which means Big Island. It's a, it's part of a string of islands called the Princess Islands, and I spent a lot of time in my youth in the, on that island, so I knew it very well. Going in the summers, or yes. did your family have a house there? Yes, it was paradise. So you're there, it's paradise. And when do you hear the news that there's been attempted coup? Well, the conference was Saturday, Sunday, and Friday night we were having an inaugural dinner so during that dinner, I started getting phone calls from CNN and uh, not knowing that I was there, people wanting me to comment on events in Istanbul. That's when I realized that there was a coup that was going on. And we started hearing, obviously, from the locals as well. But the coup fizzled. I mean, by 3 o'clock in the morning, you already knew that this was not going anywhere. So I decided, essentially, since the coup failed, that to continue my workshop, we had spent a lot of money to bring people there. And in a way, had really a captive audience. They wouldn't go anywhere. And so Saturday, Sunday, we did our work. We worked on uh, the impact of JCPOA on the Middle East and how the Middle Eastern countries were uh, reacting to 
So you thought the coup at the time was a blip. It was almost nothing. Well, it wasn't nothing. I mean, any time the Turkish military moves, it's very, very serious. Mm -hmm. But it also became very obvious to me the next morning when I started seeing accounts that this was not a very serious coup because all in all, from what I gathered, I think, there were less than 10,000 soldiers on the streets. They did it at a very awkward time. 9 p.m. in the evening, you don't do coups at 9 p.m. in the evening at Rashar on Friday night. And I have studied Turkish coups in the past, so I have a sense of what Turkish coups are like. And I actually lived through a couple of them. So um, I knew this was not serious. Mm -hmm. So that's why I decided we should go ahead and do the conference anyway. So you're doing the conference, you're leading the sessions, and, and then what begins to change? Nothing. Uh, things went very well. The conference ended Sunday evening, and we we left, and I stayed one extra day in Istanbul. I went to my favorite restaurant in Istanbul, where I, uh, was, I was having a dinner with a friend of mine, and I bumped into all kinds of people I knew. Unfortunately, I bumped into an acquaintance, I wouldn't even call him a friend, but a major NGO leader who is very close to my sister, but I've known him for many years, and he sees me. We shake hands. Months later, he gets arrested, and one of the accusations against him, the two, that he organized some protests, and his second accusation is that he met with me. So he's in jail now. He's uh, in jail he's to in this jail day? Now. He's been in jail now for 280 days mm. or something like that. But so, but then I, I came back to Washington, and trying to start looking at what it is we did, that suddenly articles in the Turkish press appeared that I was there on the island and with a cabal of people to organize a coup. And it was clear that the government was instigating this because this, I think it was a Thursday article, gave the exact time of my crossing customs, coming in and going out. This is information that only government authorities have. Certainly not Turkish newspaper folks who usually do nothing but get, especially today, get instructions and write what they're told. So they were given this information, and that's how I knew it was a government. And then the whole campaign started. I mean, they just made up stories after stories after stories. What kind of stories were they? Listen, the most bizarre one was... um, the day of the coup, when I was welcoming people coming onto the island, I see this American journalist called Scott Peterson mm-hmm. come in. He's the Christian Science Monitor, Iran, Middle East correspondent, somebody I've known for a long time. But I had not invited him. I said, Scott, what are you doing here? I mean, mm-hmm. I was so surprised. And uh, so he started laughing. He said, well, you don't know, but I'm actually engaged to one of your participants. And I said, Oh, that's great. So you will you will participate. This is about Iran. You're an Iran expert. I wasn't inviting journalists, but you, you'll take, say, sure. But then the coup happened, and he disappeared and to cover the story. Now, when you look at the roster in the hotel, everybody had, you know, Ari Baki, Wilson Center, ex-European uh, Council, or this think tank, that think tank, former ambassador. So somebody entered Scott Peterson, but did not put an affiliation. So these enterprising folks decided to figure out who's Scott Peterson. So let me ask you, if you were to Google Scott Peterson, what's the first name that appears? I'm not sure. 
Remember Scott Peterson of Lacey Peterson? The guy who killed his pregnant wife oh, in California? God. Oh, no, I would not have put that together. Okay. <laughs> so one of the Turkish newspapers one day came out with a huge picture of Scott Peterson dominating us in an orange jumpsuit saying he was there too. Is he in jail currently? Of course, he's in San Quentin. So when people started making fun of this newspaper, that, listen, you got to wrong Scott Peterson. Oh, no, 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 no. The American government sent Scott Peterson to kill people in exchange for which he was going to get paroled. So these are the kind of stories they made up. Right? There are many, many stories. I mean, one day there was this this, this, uh, Russian thinker that the Turks really, really love, this mercurial character, really shady guy called... Alexander Dubin. And they really think that whatever he says is like God's word. So there's an interview uh, with him in Russian. And underneath, as in Turkish, there's the uh, interpretation. interpretation. And he goes into great detail as to how I, Henri Baki, was on the island organizing the coup and stuff like that. So it's like the Russian intelligence and the Russians know that I was involved in the coup. So I took that segment and I sent it to a very good friend of mine who's a Russian specialist. I said, can you tell me what this guy is saying about me? He said, he doesn't talk about you. you the interpretation said it was about they you, just but the it. Russian wasn't right. actually about you. That had nothing to do with me. They just put stuff underneath that's saying that he was saying that I was involved in the coup. I mean, look, it wasn't me. I mean, they don't necessarily like me because they think I'm too critical of Erdogan, maybe. But they wanted to be able to nail the United States government. Hmm. And I had been a member of the U.S. State Department's policy planning staff. And I have good relations with the government. My wife used to work for the National Intelligence Council. So for them, this was a way of blaming the U.S. government. But at the same time, they were also blaming this exiled or... Right. Uh, they blame Fethullah Gulen, the, yeah. the exiled cleric who happens to be in Pennsylvania. Can you um, explain Gulen and his flight to Pennsylvania and where and who he is exactly? So Fethullah Gulen is this kind of a maverick preacher who has this charisma that has allowed tens of thousands of people to essentially join his movement. There is a tradition in Turkey of religious organizations led by charismatic. um, He's not the only one. There are plenty of them. His was interesting in the sense that from the beginning, he tried to create one that emphasized education, international exposure. So he created a network that was not just Turkish, but was also international. That mm-hmm. is to say, he had schools in the United States, in all over Africa, all over the Central Asia, Middle East, you name it. What is important to know about him is that he came to the United States, he sought refuge here because he was running away from the Turkish military, not from Erdogan. Mm-hmm. He actually came here way before Erdogan came to power. And when Erdogan came to power, Erdogan's party was a party that had emerged from this very retrograde, dogmatic, fundamentalist Turkish Islamic party. And Erdogan broke away from his sponsor, his his guru in that political party, a guy called Necmettin Erbakan, who had been 
for a short while prime minister until the military pushed him out. So Erdogan came to power, but this party had no idea how to run a government. So Gulen and Erdogan made this alliance. And remind us, this is 2002, correct? This is 2002, okay. right? And this alliance basically allowed Gulen to populate the Turkish bureaucracy mm-hmm. with his adherents. These were people who were sophisticated. They had created business organizations. They had created businesses. So when you look at the Gulen movement, it's a political movement, it's a religious movement, but it's also an economic movement. Mm-hmm. There was a whole infrastructure of business organizations that represented them. And they were very export-oriented. They were very international-oriented. And because he actually believed in education and and had schools abroad, a lot of these people actually spoke English too. Mm -hmm. So originally, Erdogan and Gulen have an alliance, and he's... Very close alliance. Okay. When do they split? So one of the reasons they had an alliance is because they both had a common enemy, the military and the secular elite, if you want, who, for obvious reasons, did not like them. And between 2002 and 2007, the president of Turkey was a hardline secularist who had been appointed before Erdogan had won elections. So there was a power balance, if you want. So they were not natural friends. Oh, no, 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 no. They were, they were always at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really, really mm-hmm. uh, disliked each other. But this president's term came to an end in 2007, and you had to choose a new president. Now, remember, the president then is not the president that Erdogan is today. It used to be a parliamentary system with checks and balances and so on and so forth. And the president was elected by parliament, and usually it was somebody who may have political views, etc., but would be seen as being above party because it, he or she, or was it he, would deal with all political parties in, in Turkey. So Erdogan in 2007 decided to nominate his number two in his party, who then was foreign minister, Abdullah Gül, as president. Kind of a moderate Islamist, a thoughtful guy, And the Turkish secular elite, and especially the military, went nuts, crazy about that. Mm -hmm. Why? It was really for symbolic reasons. I mean, if they had thought carefully about that, they would have realized that Gül was actually, yes, he's an Islamist, but he's actually a very moderate, very thoughtful person. But it was the fact that Gül's wife covers her head. And that was seen as the ultimate betrayal of Atatürk's Principles, secularist vision, etc. So the military gave Erdogan an ultimatum. And the military can do coups, but they can't do politics. Mm -hmm. They blew it Mm -hmm. because he called a bluff and he went and called for national elections where the only issue on the table was whether or not Mr. Gül should become president. And it was a resounding victory for Erdogan. Now, it was a resounding victory for Erdogan because the Turkish economy coming out of the 2001 crisis was doing very well, thank you. Employment had increased, Turkish economy was buzzing. So people voted with their feet, so to say. But his share of the vote went from 34% in 2002 to 47% in 2007. That was the end of the Turkish military's real political power. So part of the glue that bound Erdogan to Gülen and vice versa started to kind of dry. Because their mutual enemy had been pushed off the stage. 
But then there was, a, by 2010, there was a series of constitutional reforms that both Erdogan and Gulen backed on judiciary especially uh, that eliminated vestiges of the Kemalist judicial system. And this is part of a consolidation of power? It is the beginning of the consolidation of power. Mm -hmm. So as institutions slowly fell by the wayside, the reason for Gulen and Erdogan to stay together diminished. But most importantly, after 10 years of power, let's say, in 2013, Erdogan no longer needed the Gulen cadres anymore because he had his own cadres by then that mm -hmm. he had developed. So it's one thing not to need them, but it's another thing to have this radical break and now to blame them for the coup. H how do we get ah, to that? Because then they start having major differences over issues. Mm -hmm. One of them is the Kurdish question. Your listeners will be surprised to hear that in the early 2010s, Erdogan decided for his own political reasons, that it was time to look for a political solution to the Turkish-Kurdish problem. Gulen didn't like that. Gulen huh. is very anti-Kurdish, huh. or at least was then. Now he's taking another tack, I think. So that's the issue over which the two kind of split. It turns out that Erdogan may not have been sincere. Now we're finding that he's, he's going after the Kurds in, in a way that is reminiscent, if not worse, than what the Turkish military used to do when they were in power. But nonetheless, at the time, and to Erdogan's credit, he did try, and he did start negotiate with the PKK, which he is a terrorist group, blah, blah, blah. Gulen mm -hmm. objected to that. And that's when you see clashes between the two. And there's, uh, the Gulenists start to try to undermine Erdogan's policies. And then, you know, the knives are, were drawn on both sides. And we end up with a coup. We're here in 2016. Just bring us back for a minute. Right. Is Golan behind the coup? Look, the Turkish government has created this incredible 1984-type narrative that Gulen is behind just about everything. Mm -hmm. If it rains, it's Gulen. If it's an earthquake, it's Gulen. Yeah. The problem is a major military coup in Turkey mm -hmm. that would have employed all its units could not have been just a Gulenist coup. Not all Turkish military officers are Gulenists. I think there are Gulenist officers, but they do not represent a significant component. It, what this probably was is a coup that had some Gulenist officers, some serious secularists who did not like Erdogan, some people who were, um, you know, were going to take advantage and improve their place in, in, in society or life or the army. Mm -hmm. But we don't know because we don't know who was really involved in the coup since only there were 10,000 soldiers out there. Tell us about the purge. So within a week, yeah. they purged 50% of all the Turkish generals and admirals, some, almost 200 of them. If those 200 generals and yeah. admirals had been involved in the coup, yeah. that coup would have succeeded. Huh. There would have been many more soldiers uh, and units out in the streets at night. It wouldn't have taken place at 9 o'clock during Rashar in Istanbul. So I'm saying is that he, he, Erdogan turned it yeah. essentially into the device for him to now completely consolidate power in his person. Right? And since then, not only he has purged society from tens of thousands of people, the bureaucracy, the police, the judiciary, universities, civil society organizations. When you look at the Turkish press today, 95% of the Turkish press repeats exactly what the government wants it to say. 
There is no free press anymore. There is no separation of powers anymore. Oh. But he, from, from the coup onwards, mm-hmm. very methodically took steps. First, he changed the constitution that made Turkey a presidential system. Then he had this election in June of 2018. And those two steps now, with the changes that he has brought together, means that it's a one-person authoritarian regime. Parliament doesn't matter. The courts don't matter. The central bank doesn't matter. Every decision is taken by Erdogan and his coterie. And I think I would, not even the coterie I mean, around him. It's him that makes the decisions. At the moment of the coup, how did Obama respond? So this is one of the things that the Turks are very upset about, mm-hmm. and that Obama did not come out swinging, saying, Turkey is a democracy, we reject the coup. Mm-hmm. There was a period of kind of quiet coming mm-hmm. from the White House. And I think that was a mistake mm-hmm. by the White House. Why it happened, I've, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, is, was it that they were waiting to see what was going to happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, was it that, was it something about uh, President uh, Obama, who by that time had really um, soured on Erdogan Mm-hmm. Uh, because of what was going on in Syria and the support that the Turkish government was giving to jihadists in Syria. And also, again on Syria, the Obama administration and the Turkish government were on really opposite side of the Syrian Kurdish issue and the fight against Daesh. How did Erdogan interpret Obama's silence? I think he was angered by it, but, and it helped actually to really create this narrative that he built from the day of Kukui or the day after, if you want, Mm -hmm. that this was an American coup. It isn't that he came out Mm -hmm. immediately and said this isn't, but he started putting the signposts Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. be able to say that. And in many ways, now he says overtly, oh, they did the coup. Mm -hmm. The Americans did the coup. But in a country where conspiracy theories essentially dominate most of the discussion, whether it's on television or newspapers or something like that, an American conspiracy is the easiest one to sell. But he did it very carefully. And that's how, for example, this is how I got caught in this, mm-hmm. because I was the way they could prove that, oh, my God, there were Americans the night mm-hmm. of the coup, the U.S. was involved. Can you draw a link between the coup and the current collapse of the lira? How did we get from there to here, and how are they connected? Um, there is a, a relationship, and there isn't. Okay. The Turkish economy has been doing very well on paper. Mm-hmm. When you look at Turkish GDP growth, it has been quite spectacular. And under Erdogan, Turkey really went from a kind of a very lackluster economy to a very dynamic one. Mm-hmm. And now Turkey is one of the G20, one of the 20 mm-hmm. largest economies in the world. Erdogan did it because he did not mess up the reforms that his predecessors from another party, specifically a guy called Turgut Özal, had introduced. But what he also did was to help build the economy by investing in very large infrastructure projects, mm-hmm. bridges, tunnels, highways, the largest airport in the world that is going to be opened on uh, October 29th of this year. So uh, this mammoth building boom helped fuel this growth. Plus, coming out of the 2008 economic crisis, 
you had a period of what people refer to as quantitative easing, mm-hmm. i.e. when interest rates were very, very low globally. So you encourage also for Turkish companies to borrow heavily abroad at almost zero interest rates. So that all fueled the growth of the Turkish economy. But in the process, he also created certain vulnerabilities. Now you have a Turkish economy that is very indebted to foreign banks, foreign individuals, and all this indebtedness is based on foreign exchange. Now, if inflation goes up, which in Turkey has been going up significantly, it's almost 16% now, and it's going to go even higher, the way you combat inflation is by increasing interest rates and by contracting. Erdogan believes that interest rates themselves cause inflation, not vice versa. So to combat inflation, you keep interest rates low and you bring them even lower if you can. So that has created a great deal of uncertainty in the international financial community saying these guys really don't know what they're doing because if you have cookie theories like that being mm-hmm. implemented and because Erdogan under the new system now controls all the institutions of the country, mm-hmm. the central bank is no longer independent. So there's no check on that. There's absolutely no check on that. There's also, I would argue from investors' perspective, Because there is no separation of powers anymore in Turkey, you no longer have a judiciary that is capable of saying no to Erdogan, which brings us essentially to Pastor Brunson and all these other detainees is because if you look at the indictment against uh, Pastor Brunson, it's ludicrous. It's preposterous. It It is made up of all these conspiracy theories that, as I said, just like they invented stuff on me, they've invented enormous amount of stuff. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned him because the jailing of Pastor Brunson, I think he's been in jail now for two years, has become a major sticking point in the U.S.-Turkish relationship. But also, I don't quite understand it. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, the, the culprit here is the Turkish government. But the U.S. government really dropped the ball on this. First of all, let's put things in context. Pastor Brunson has been somebody who's been in Turkey for a very, very long period of time. And, and he's a missionary. He's a missionary. Missionaries are not very well received, but it, it isn't that he was having a huge impact. Mm-hmm. But it was an American. I mean, again, it's part of finding Americans and putting pressure on America because the Turks want certain things from the United States. And what do they accuse him of having done? Oh, they're accusing him of participating in, in the coup, working with Gulen, or, or working with the PKK, the, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, mm-hmm. the, the organization that both the United States and Turkey considers terrorists, and except that Gulen and the PKK are complete opposite and enemies of each other, but that's another, it, consistency is not exactly what they care about. That said, we've been focusing on the pastor, but there's actually a much bigger problem there. There are three consular officials, Turks, who work for us. They're called Foreign Service Nationals. These are people who really help embassies and consulates do their job. Mm -hmm. So three of them are in detention, two in prison, one in in house arrest. This is a way of putting pressure on us. What did the United States do when they incarcerated the Ah, That's a good question. Okay, initially they did nothing because they wanted to keep things quiet. And where are we in time right now? More than a year and a half now. But it's all during the Trump administration. All during the Trump administration. And the problem is the Trump administration showed very, very little interest. Mm -hmm. They should have from the very beginning 
said, this is completely unacceptable. You're detaining our people on fictitious charges. You will pay a price for this here. But when Trump came into office, he actually had a lot of admiring comments about Erdogan. Yes. uh, A few weeks ago, he had had this supposedly fist bump at the NATO summit. But something has soured between them recently. Well, suddenly, I think the administration discovered that the Brunson case was becoming too much. Brunson, from what I gather, is part of this evangelical community that Mike Pence is part of. And it is Mike Pence who decided to push this issue and get the president involved. And with Trump, once he gets an idea in his head, he's going to pursue it. Mm -hmm. And he did negotiate with Erdogan Mm -hmm. at the NATO summit. There was a deal. We actually don't exactly know what the deal is because it hasn't become public. But Brunson was released from prison. Everybody expected him to be on a plane to come here, except that they put him under house arrest. And that's when the wheels came off the rails. And Trump got very upset, imposed sanctions on two Turkish Uh, officials, and then did the increase in tariffs on Turkish steel and Turkish aluminum. And then, in his typical fashion, then decided to send tweets. That had the result of pushing the Turkish lira into levels that we had never seen that were completely unexpected. Uh, The Turkish lira had declined to five and a quarter to a dollar, suddenly went down to seven liras to a dollar, all because of a question of perception that the administration was not gunning for Turkey. It sounds like this is an open-ended story without a clear conclusion yet. But but how do you think this will end for you and for the Turkish current crisis? Well, for me, I don't think it ends well in the sense that, look, I've spent a long time in my career on on Turkey, Mm -hmm. political economy, the military, the Kurdish question. I have a big project on the Kurds now. I can't travel to Turkey. Now, the the one thing I forgot to tell you, they actually have an arrest warrant on me. When did they issue that? I don't know. I started seeing uh, stories in the Turkish press that there's an arrest warrant, but nobody communicated to me, so Mm -hmm. I don't know for a fact, except that about a month ago, I got a call from the U.S. government saying that they had ascertained that the arrest warrant is real Mm -hmm. and that I should be careful traveling. I mean, I can't go to Turkey. I can't go into a Turkish Airlines flight to anywhere mm-hmm. because the arrest warrant is real. I mean, they will they will arrest me. And having seen what the U.S. government does in terms of its own citizens, I'm not convinced that the U.S. government will do its utmost to, to get me out. And But most importantly, I have no access to officials in Turkey. Mm-hmm. They won't talk to me. There are a lot of people, in, friends of mine, in Turkey who no longer talk to me because it's dangerous. And even friends of mine in this country have also stopped talking to me. So Because they're afraid they won't be able to go back? I don't know. I mean, I, I, Or because they mistrust you in some way? Who knows? I don't. I, I have no, no idea. I mean, there is certainly a great deal of distance. That's okay. Look, I've had, I've had a good career. I'm, I'm a political scientist. I can do other things. I'll t- figure out how to do this project. If I can't, I can't. But um, there, there's plenty of other things in the world to write about, and that does not involve the Turks. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, I mean, my days in Turkey are over. I have to wait for a regime change, so to say, or for Erdogan to leave and be replaced. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That's Henri Barkey. He's a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. 
and teaches international relations at Lehigh University. Our show this week was produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. 